you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, hope you don't ever come to church without your Bible, find Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This morning, if you've been here all summer, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. We're actually coming to one of the shortest sections in this study through Exodus that we're going to have this summer. Uh, we've been having to, it's a 40 chapter book, so we've had to cover big chunks of chapters most every week to try to get through it over the course of this summer. Um, this morning we get a little bit of a break from the length of chapters. We're just looking at three chapters today, uh, chapters 32 to 34, but they, un, you know, not unfortunately, they, they still tend to be, uh, or they happen to be very eventful chapters, very significant ones, so they're still a good bit to think about. I hope you were able to read it ahead of time. I, I, I put it in the group me yesterday, um, and if you did read them, you know, because we can't read the whole thing this morning, you know how eventful these chapters are. That the it, it begins, and we'll read it in just a minute, but it begins with this, this episode of the people of Israel um, committing idolatry, worshiping the fashioning, and then worshiping the golden calf. Uh, Moses coming down from the mountains, seeing the idolatry, burning hot with anger, throwing the Ten Commandments, the tablets down, breaking them, and then he intercedes for the people, and God pours out his judgment on the people. In 33, he's, God tells Moses, I, the people are sinful. I'm not going to be in the midst of the people as you set out from Sinai. Moses intercedes again. He's like, what's the purpose if you're not, if you're not in our midst? Please be in our midst. And the covenant is renewed in 34, and God meets with Moses again. His face shines. I mean, it's just a lot in this chapter, uh, in these chapters. But we're going to cover as much of it as we can. Um, yeah, there's still stuff that's going to be left unsaid. It's just the way it is. But for starts, let's read chapter 32, because this is really the, the, the foundation for everything we're going to say this morning. This is the seminal event that's going to guide our thinking through what happens over the course of these three chapters. So chapter 32, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. When the people saw that Moses delayed, so Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, or an image of a bull, really. And they, they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this... He built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, I want to just point out right there, this, had to be, this was a confusion of time because they clearly made an idol. And, and, and as we'll see in a minute, this, this idol was fashioned after the 
nations around them. But he still says, if you look carefully at the end of verse 5, shall be a feast to the Lord. And it's in small caps in your Bible, which means they're still, Aaron is still sort of like uh, synthesizing this idol with the name of the one true God. But anyway, verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, um, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the, in the mountains and to consume them from, being, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster, this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heaven of heaven and in all this land that i have promised i will give to your offspring and they they shall inherit it forever and the lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people and then moses turned and went down from down the mountain from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand tablets that were written on both sides on the front and on the back and they, uh, they were written the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets when Joshua heard the noise so Joshua apparently was like at least partially up the mountain waiting on Moses to come down Joshua heard the noise and the people as they shouted he said to Moses this there's a noise of war in the camp but he said it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of, cry, of the cry of defeat, it, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain, indicating that the covenant had already been broken. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Oh, my gosh. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each, of, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up before the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this, this, uh, this that we just read is not, is not just a, a, a historical artifact. It's, it, it is a story about us. And I pray we first recognizing that what we just read and everything we're studying this morning is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We we pray again that you would please give us eyes to see the truth in this passage. Would you give us minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it. Give, give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in the, in, in the Word. Would you give me the help that I need to teach? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As you could imagine, there's a lot in just that chapter we just read. This, that one. But it gives you a little background to everything else we're going to say, even about chapters 33 and 34. So I had to consider, considering how much is in that chapter alone and how much we see in the other two, I, I had to think about how best to try to encapsulate as much as this, of, of this as I can and, and just present it. So as I, as I read through um, the chapters and as you did, I, there seems to be in 32, 33, and 34 sort of three major movements to it. Each, each movement, sort of, you see each movement as you look at um, each major character of the story. So there are three ma main characters to this, one character being the people of Israel. And then you have Moses, and then you got God himself. And as you look at each major character in the flow of these stories, you sort of see a different theme arising to the top that I think is helpful for us to see. So that's what I'd like us to focus on. If you're taking notes, here are the, the, the points that I want us to consider. First, we're going to look at the people. And so as we look at the actions of the people in these chapters, we need to think about the blinding power of sin. The blinding power of sin. It's really astonishing. I tried to bring that out as I read chapter 32. Uh, it, but this chapter doesn't just teach us about them. It teaches us about us. And so the blinding power of sin. Then, we'll turn our focus to Moses in these chapters. And what I see in Moses, 
over the course is the sanctifying purpose of prayer. The sanctifying purpose of prayer. Now, certainly when we look at Moses praying in these chapters, there is, it, it tells us more about his prayer than just what, how it sanctifies him. Certainly his prayers and his intercessions move things, make things happen. But the way that it's told, it, it, what, what actually arises to the fore above all those things is how, how his intercession is actually sanctifying himself. And I think that's, that's teaching us too. And then finally, we'll focus on uh, God himself and we'll think about the abiding, the abiding presence of God. That's an interesting movement throughout this passage. Some of that will, will come out in the first two points, but we'll tie it, try to tie it up in the end. Well, there are many miles to go, so let's dive in and take a closer look at the passage and think first about what it has to teach us about the blinding power of sin. So chapter 32 um, that we just read, it's one of the most well-known passages, not, not well, certainly in the book of Exodus, um, but really in all of Scripture um, because of this 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 golden calf episode. I mean, like, and I think, I think this golden calf episode, the, the infamy of it, uh, is not only that they committed this idolatry, um, but also when they did and why it says they did. That they did it, when they did it, why they did it. So, uh, and I think it's a, because when you, when you look at it from that perspective, it's a, it, it unquestionably teaches us about the blinding power of sin in our fallen hearts, not just in theirs, but in ours, despite its irrationality. All sin is utterly irrational. It is. Now, we need to take a closer look and see why I say that. Let's first, let's first think about when this happened. It's hard to... It's hard to be always mindful of this when, for two things, we, we're only look, every time we look at this book of Exodus, it's been a whole week since the last time we looked at it. And then, on top of that, when we look at it, we're covering enormous chunks of text at the same time. Like last week was six chapters, right? So it's, sometimes it's hard to, you, you, you almost feel like when you come to a new passage, because you covered a big chunk last time, and it's been a whole week since then, you feel like every time you come to it, you're just parachuting in to this island of text, this disconnected from everything that came before it, because you don't even remember what came before it. But you don't need to think that this is happening out of the blue of what we've already said. It's, I mean, and it's, you know, even thinking about the la- it feels like, even if you do think, we need to think about what came before. What we talked about last week was six chapters of you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall, like in the, in the, in the, in the, in the construction of the, of the tabernacle. So it feels like it's been a minute since we hit anything exciting in the book of Exodus. But truthfully, what we read here in chapter 32 is really coming just days, days on the heels of what we saw in chapters 19 to 24 in the giving of the law when God appeared to all the people on Mount Sinai there below and he's appearing to them on the mountain in, the, in, in, in flashes of lightning and they're hearing his voice like the sound of, of thunder in this vis, jaw-dropping visual display of God. Uh, 
and, 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 and strict instructions, don't come near, don't even touch this mountain because you'll die. And then, and then Moses actually gets called to go up the mountain and the cloud descends, the people see it. And here's what we read, and you can flip back to it if you want to. And at the end of chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, it says, Now the appearance, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain, underscore this, in the sight of all the people. They all saw it. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And it's just days into that that 32 happens, that chapter 32 happens. They saw that. They, they heard his voice like thunder. They, and, and, and 19 to 24, that's on the heels of what you saw just before that, of God literally appearing to them in pillars of cloud and fire. Not just to guide them and lead them, but to cut off Pharaoh's army so that the, the waters could be miraculously divided and they could walk across on dry land. And then they see God destroy the horse and his rider of Pharaoh's army. In the, I mean, they saw that. They were there. The mist of the water probably hit them. They saw that. They felt that. And that's, that's not, it's not just that kind of stuff, but like God literally providing miraculously manna, food for them to eat every single day in the wilderness. I don't know if it was brought out when we talked about it, but did you, you know what manna means? The word manna? It means what is it? That's the name. Manna is the word for what is it? They didn't even know what it is. There is no rational, reasonable explanation for why this stuff appears, they don't even know what it is. It's not something that could just blow in from that region next door. That doesn't exist on earth. It's a miraculous provision of food. They, they literally ate into their mouths what God was providing for them. They saw it. And they had just seen all this. They had just experienced all this. And you come to... You come to chapter 32, and they're just a few days into, into Moses' 40 days on the mountain, and this is, when they go, this, is, this is when they go awry. And they rebelled in this overt and obvious way. That's when they did it. But not only that, that they did it at all just a few days later. It's quite amazing. Not, ju not just based on all that I just said, but just remembering that this is days after, days after chapter 24. Chapter 24, when twice they said, remember 24 is the ratification of this covenant with Moses, two times, just days earlier, the people say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. and We will be obedient. What did he have just said? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any graven images. You got it, God. We'll do it. That, that, it's not just when they did it. It's that they did it. But why do they do it? That's another thing. Why? Looking at chapter 32 again, like verse 1 begins this way. When the people saw that Moses delayed, we're not told. Was it a week later? Was it two weeks later? Was it three weeks later? Was it a month in? I don't know. 
when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, then they told, they told Moses, as for this man Moses, who brought, just like this throwaway phrase, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, like that was a no big deal. We don't know what's happened to him. Come on, man. How do you spin that positively? Like, I mean, even... Let's just, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and, 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 and just, I'll, for the sake of argument, I'll just assume you think he died up there and he ain't coming back at all. What does that change? Does that change any of the things that we just said they experienced for themselves? If they never... If they never see Moses alive again, does that change that they ate the manna? Does that change that they saw that they crossed the Red Sea? Does that change that they've received his law? Does that change anything? It's, it, it, yeah. You have to ask, what in the world were they thinking? And it's when, it's when scriptures show us episodes like this one that we really come to understand how incredibly irrational sin is. And, and it's not just for them. It's for us too. All sin is irrational. And if you look at them in Exodus 32 and, and focus on how bad they were, you'll miss the whole point that they are all of us. Just a little bit of unguarded time passes. A little bit of unguarded time passes and they were blind to all that they had seen and had experienced and eaten with their own mouths. And they, what did they, they don't stay in neutral. They don't stay in neutral. Where do they go? They drift to what the cultures around them already valued and already respected and already promoted. They just swam in the stream that was easy to swim in. I mean, why did they make a graven image of a bull? Because that's how the nations around them depicted their gods that's exactly how blind sin is blinding to us unguarded time i said that what what do i mean by unguarded time i just it's 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 time that goes by the longer the time goes by that we stop reminding ourselves through time in his word through time in prayer through time with his church we stop reminding ourselves of what we know to be true about the lord and of what the Lord has done for us, unguarded time like that passes by, and it doesn't take long for, for, for uh, us to forget all that we know is true, which is why the Lord, because our nature is exactly what the Lord said about us in verse 9, which is that we are a stiff-necked people. Israel wasn't particularly stiff-necked. I'm stiff-necked. If I was in Israel, that would be me. Like, Stiff-necked people. What does stiff-neck mean? A people who refuse, who are like a, a stubborn ox that doesn't want to be turned away from where I want to go. Sin that we entertain does that to us. And, and we sound so stupid in trying to justify it. I mean, just listen to... Do you realize the emphasis that was put on Aaron? Like... Verse 4 says, he received the golden gold from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool. He made the golden calf. He did it. He literally put his hands to it. But when confronted with it, verse 24, 
So I said to them, let, let who have gold take it off. They gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. Well, that is amazing. Was he for real? That's not because Aaron was a dumb person. I mean, you, you, you know, at the very least, he was a good craftsman. He's not a dumb person. It's because sin is that deceiving. Sin blinds us to rationality. And we willingly do what ought not to be done. And, and we give approval to others who do the same. That's how Paul puts it in Romans. That, that's why we need to stay constant in the Word. That's why we need to keep the Word of God always in the forefront of our minds. Memorizing it is a good way to do that. To renew our minds, to build our faith, to make us watchful over our own hearts and, and, and sensitive to what's going on in my heart. Because this story also shows us that their uh, stupid sin and their stupid rebellious did not go without consequences, we're going to talk about Moses' intercession uh, for them in just a minute, which spared them a greater judgment. But uh, you see that the Levites brought, the Levites first brought judgment on them, killed many of them with the sword. The Lord himself sends a plague in verse 35. Man, 1 Corinthians 10, by the way, is sort of Paul's commentary on this episode. I don't know if y'all know that, but like uh, you, in, verse, in verse 6 it says, and the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. Paul quotes that verse in 1 Corinthians 10. And then um, when, when it says in verse 35 that the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made, 1 Corinthians 10, 8 says, 23,000 people died in that plague. Gives us the number. And by the way, if that seems too severe, I don't think we've adequately taken into account the holiness of God and His worth. We know that intuitively, by the way, right? If I should get a toy gun that looks kind of real, and I run up to you and I go, bang, 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 you're going to be like, you're weird. And you might not want to be my friend anymore. If I should run up to the President of the United States with a toy gun and go, bang, 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 much worse is going to happen to me. We know that intuitively. The, 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 the infinite worth brings a more infinite consequence. That's why hell is not unjust. Right? Sin is not only stupid, it's dangerous. And, and, and as I said earlier, it would have been a far more severe judgment on them were it not for the prayer and intercession of Moses on their behalf. And so I want to consider that for a minute, the sanctifying purpose of prayer. If you read these chapters ahead of time, and, and if, you, if, if while you read it, you paid attention to the different uh, subheadings in your Bible, you may, your Bible may, like mine, have a heading near the end of chapter 33 with a little subheading that says Moses' intercession. But if you read the chapters carefully, Moses prays and intercedes far more than just right there. Like, for sure, it almost found, feels like he never stops praying. But for sure, I, I, I count four different times that Moses intercedes and prays for the people. He, he prays and intercedes for them two different times in chapter 32. 
And then he intercedes in 33, and then he intercedes again in 34. Moses is a mediator in this covenant between the people and God. And, and, and because he is the mediator between this covenant and because he is constantly in intercession for the people before God, he's like a for, prophetic forerunner of what Christ would do in a greater way. Hebrews 7.25, he's able to say, Christ is able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. But in chapter 32, because of his intercession, he spares them from a fuller judgment that the Lord could have justly brought on them. I want, I want, uh, I want to take a quick look at these prayers that Moses offered. And, and, and I want to take note, not, not first and foremost, what they accomplished outwardly, like what they brought about. Like I just said it, he prayed and he spared them. The, 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 the result was they were spared a fuller judgment. Okay, well, I don't want to spend my, this time when I look at his prayers to think, what did they accomplish outwardly? I want, to, I want to more pointedly watch the transformation in Moses himself as he is constantly in the presence of God, constantly receiving the word of God, constantly returning it back to the Lord in prayer. Okay, the first prayer of intercession takes place while Moses is actually still up on the mountain. He hasn't even come down and seen the rebellion with his own eyes yet. The Lord told Moses what the people had done. They had made a golden calf, etc., etc. And, and in verse 10, in 32, the Lord threatens to consume all the people because of their sinful rebellion. And in light of that news, Moses prays, beginning in verse 11. And notice how Moses prays here, in verse, beginning in verse 11. In this prayer that run, begins in 11 and runs the next few verses, he makes two basic appeals to God in this prayer that is instructive for us. First, in praying for the people, he appeals to, to the glory and the reputation of God in the world. Like he cares about God's reputation and God's glory in the world. Look again at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your anger, your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against the people. Why should the Egyptians think this about you, God? Moses was, was concerned not, for, not foremost for the people. He was concerned foremost for the glory and the reputation of God in the eyes of the Egyptians, right? And he appealed to God on that basis, concerned for what would bring God most glory. That's instructive for us when we pray. But secondly, he appeals to God's own word and promise. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven by the way, that promise is repeated many times in Genesis. And all this land I, pro I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And God, he said, God, not only will this bring you most glory to spare the people, but you, it will enable you to be faithful to your own word. And God answered that prayer. In both appeals, Moses was um, appealing to God's glory and his character for his request. There, there was no self-interest in his prayers. There was no pretense that the people didn't deserve it. He was only concerned for what would bring God glory and, 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 be, and, how, to be, and how 
that he would be manifestly true to his word and promise. I want you to see something to notice, though, interesting in this first intercessory prayer. Notice how, if you're looking at verse 10, notice how just before Moses prays, the Lord had said, Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. That my wrath may burn hot against them. All right? And then Moses prays against this. That's what we just talked about. But notice how after God said that to him, that my, let, leave me alone so my wrath may burn hot, and he prays. When Moses finished praying, he goes down the mountain, and he first sees their rebellion and the calf with his own eyes. Notice what we're told in verse 19. And as soon as he, as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Do you see what's happening? Moses, through his meeting with the Lord in prayer, came to see it just as God saw it. And, and God's anger was burning hot, and therefore Moses' anger was burning hot. He had the same reaction to it as God himself had, it, had to it. Like the Lord was sanctifying Moses... Uh, as Moses heard the word of the Lord and returned back to him in, in intercessory prayer. But notice how another progression in the sanctification of Moses happens in his next intercession later in the chapter in verse 32. So after the sad but hilarious confrontation of Aaron, he, he appeals to the Lord one more time on behalf of the people. He tells, he tells the people... After some 3,000 of them had already died at the hands of the Levites, he tells them in verse 30, he tells the rest of the people, I'm going to go to the Lord in intercession one more time. I'm going to see if I can make atonement for your great sin. Now, he doesn't make atonement for their sin, but he does appeal for restraint and prays for a more targeted judgment. But notice, notice how he prays this time. He essentially prays in verse 32 that if the Lord... He's going to judge all the people. If he's going to judge all the people for the sins of some, Moses literally prays then for God to blot him out of his book as well. That's amazing. Verse 32, please blot me out of your book. He, he's, he's in, in this sense, he's praying like Paul would pray later in Romans, that he could wish himself accursed for the sake of his people. But in another sense, Moses is being like Christ here, right? Desiring to take the sinful consequences of the people on himself when he did not actually do the sin. But Moses, again, in that second prayer, was what is he doing? He's still looking away from himself. He, he, he's willing to be cut off for the sake of the people. And it was in answer to that prayer that the Lord sent a plague on only some of them, even though it was a lot, 23,000. When you come to chapter 33, that's when the Lord tells the people, he tells them to set off, leave Mount Sinai and start going out to the land that I will show you. But he tells them in, in chapter 33, verse 3, I will not go up among you. I will not be in your midst as you go because, because you are a sinful, stiff-necked people. And, and that is followed as a result in chapter 33 by telling us beginning in verse 7 of chapter 33, that because God said, I'm not going to go up in, in your midst, that's when it tells us 
that Moses would actually, here's the camp of the people, and Moses would set up the tabernacle way outside the camp. Because God said, I, I'm not going to be in your midst because I would consume you. So Moses, and he sets up, we remember last week we looked at Numbers 2, and, and the, the purpose was for the tabernacle to be right in the midst of the people. It was to be the center of their, center of their day. But he built the, he would set up the tabernacle way outside. And that's where verse 11 says he, God would meet with Moses as a man meets a friend face to face. More on that in a minute. But when he would go in there and the cloud would descend, the people would go to the door of their own tent. They would see the cloud. They would bow in worship. But again, like I said, when we looked at Numbers 2, we saw that the purpose was for the, the tabernacle to be right in the midst of the people as they went. Uh, so that his presence and his blessing was the very center of their existence as a people. But now, because of their sin, the tabernacle was being set up right for right now, way outside the camp. And again, Moses intercedes. And he prays in verses 14 to 16, in chapter 33. And he, if you read that, he, well, let's just read it. He said, my presence will, uh, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But he, and he said, Moses said in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He said, Lord, your presence with us is, is the only thing that makes us worth being a people. Right? So now Moses has progressed from not only taking on the character of God in his own life, burning hot for what the Lord burns hot against, and not only, not only from dying to himself, Lord, blot me out of your book like Christ would do, but now what he wants more than anything is for the presence of the Lord to be in their midst. And I, just, I, don't, I don't want anything more than for you to be in your presence. Which leads very naturally at the end of verse 30, uh, chapter 33 to say, God, I mean, Moses saying to God in verse 18, please show me your glory. And it's then that God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and, and the glory of the Lord passes by, though Moses didn't see it directly. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then finally in chapter 34, after the covenant is renewed, there's new tablets are given. There's emphasis again in chapter 34 on the, on the constant intercession of Moses for the people and how there's this back and forth over and over again in chapter 34 saying that when Moses would go into the tent to intercede for the people in the presence of God, when he came out, his face would shine with the glory of God uh, and he would have to veil his face. I, <laughs> I think what this chapter gives us is... is is that the, the prayer and intercession of Moses doesn't just change things, it changes him. Right? It changes him. And again, it, that, that is not unique to Moses. That is not unique to Moses. Any more than the sin of Israel is not unique to them. Like, certainly Moses is unique in salvation history. There ain't another Moses. But this sanctifying purpose of prayer is not unique to him. That Moses was, what was he doing? He was constantly receiving the word of God. And as he, as he heard and then read, because God wrote it down for him, heard and read the word of God and he turned it back to God in prayer, over the course of time, he was transformed more greatly into the image of God. 
from wanting what God wanted, loving what he loved, and hating what he hated, to, to, to literally willing to die for his people, for God to be true to his word, to I just want to be in your presence, to shining with the very glory of God. Right? That is the same purpose for us. That the more we are constantly in the Word and in prayer, not only, as we said in the first point, does it make us more watchful over the, the sinful tendencies of our own hearts, but it makes us more like God altogether, like, like Christ, loving what He loves and hating what He hates. And, we'll, and shining like He shines. We'll see that in a minute. That brings us to the last point, which is, where I hope to tie some of the loose ends up as we think about the abiding presence of God. Um, this is no doubt the most prominent thing in these chapters about God. So, and the presence of God and His abiding presence is the, is the prominent theme in the whole second division of the book. So one thing that, that these chapters sort of impress upon you in the, in the early sections of the book is, is the seeming precariousness of the abiding presence of God. Like, it's, 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 it's shaky. It's precarious. God, God first wanting to consume all the people. And then if he's not going to consume them, I'm not even going to be in your midst. Like, it's, it's ugh, because, you know, he's not there. And, 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 and Moses gives us a picture of Christ, you know, like I said, the intercession, like, please be in our midst. For one thing, um, you know, we said he's going to say, blot me out. But he's pointing us forward to Christ that way. And he's interceding for, on, on behalf and taking the full judgment on himself so that the sinner could go free. But this passage, throughout the flow of it, uh, 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 points us forward to Christ in that way and shows us that the, 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 the truly abiding presence of God with his people was not fully and finally accomplished until Christ came. Like, uh, you know, the, the, Christ is the abiding presence of God for us. And in chapter 33, Moses asks to see the glory of God, to, to assure him of God's presence in their midst. And God, what does it say? God made his glory. He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God made his glory pass by. I've, I've probably pointed this out, in, you know, before... Jesus would later reveal that he, he, he was, he's the fulfillment of God with us. There's this curious and interesting scene in Mark chapter 6 when the disciples are in a boat and they see Jesus walking on the water. And they see Jesus coming out walking on the water to them. And, and, and we're told in verse 40-something <laughs> that Jesus meant to pass them by passed by them i don't i don't think that means literally he saw them on the boat and he's just gonna walk right on by them and not oh i didn't see all over there i didn't i don't think it's that i think that language is on purpose he in his walking on the water revealed his glory as god and man and he wanted to pass by them as god passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock, so that they might see his glory, right? And when he told them, you read it in the English text, and it doesn't, it doesn't strike you like this, but when they saw him walking on the water, they were afraid. And in the English, Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
it is I or it is me. What do you think he literally said? Don't be afraid. I am. Like he, this is clearly Jesus is the abiding presence of God with us. Never to leave us nor forsake us. But that abiding presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with us is, is, is granted to us, appropriated to us through the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And that we see picked up, this passage points us forward to as well. Because, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul again is, is thinking back on this passage. He's thinking back on this passage. And, and that's in 2 Corinthians 3 is when he says, he talks about when we're reading the law, when we're reading Moses, he says, we no longer have a veil over our faces like, like Moses had to, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord in the scriptures we are what's happening we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another like moses was in a greater way how does this happen for this comes from the lord who is the spirit it is it is it is breathtaking i turn right to it do you ever do that that's amazing it is it is it's really breathtaking to put, whenever I read stories like this, I always, what, if I was there, what would it be like? If I, if I put myself in the story, it helps me see it better. If you put yourself in the story and just try to imagine what Moses saw and what Moses experienced, but the truth is, when you come to the New Testament, you realize that in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we have been given something even greater and that even Moses himself longed to see. That's a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word, and uh, I pray that uh, you would encourage us deeply through it, make us more watchful over the, the blinding power of sin in our own hearts, Help us to do that by being constant in your word and in prayer that, that you might sanctify us as you did Moses. Grateful for your abiding presence that you have with us in Christ through the Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.